a bad day. Bad day for you? Another one, yeah. Yeah, I know. Too many in a row. I suddenly woke up one morning and I said, bloody hell, what have we done here? Saw it, didn't you? It was down some. Everybody looked at each other and said, maybe these companies aren't worth anything after all. For many investors, those clips may have brought back painful memories of the dot-com bust, the technology-driven hype which inflated the bubble. The dot-com boom and bust was not the first time mania for a certain sector, index or asset class inflated a bubble which inevitably burst. Nor will it be the lot. Prior to the coronavirus crash at the start of this year, many investors were pondering whether market mania was driving another tech-fueled bubble. I think there are two bubbles. We have a stock market bubble and we have a bond market bubble. And now that coronavirus-infected stock markets have returned to the same lofty valuations as last summer, those concerns are even more pressing. Dive into the history books can help teach us whether we are currently in a bubble. And this week we've been joined by two market experts to teach us the lessons of bubbles gone by, Philip Ryland and Chris Dillo. And we'll also be joined by Algie Hall to unpick how behavioural finance can fuel bubbles. There's a herding instinct in humans. There's all sorts of characteristics and you put that together into a financial market, and it moves. And later we'll discuss fund manager bubble strategies with the IC's Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Dave Baxter. I'm John Human, And I'm Megan Bocktall. Welcome to the Investment Hour. The Investment, the Investment Hour. Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. We've been joined by Algie Hall, who has given up some of his holiday to talk investor behaviour. Algie, why is behaviour so crucial in investing? There are lots of behavioural mistakes that um, everyone has hardwired into them. And um, at the heart of almost any investment strategy, there's um, there's an effort to take advantage of some of these kind of behavioural mistakes. So even even passive investing, which you could say is um, almost kind of um, avoids um, doing, doing anything in a way, it's, it's kind of based on the idea of the wisdom of crowds and just staying invested in a in, in a passive strategy to stop yourself making the kind of mistakes which um, reduce performance. You talk about the wisdom of crowds, but bubbles are often fueled by the madness of crowds. You know, what's to say that well, that following a passive strategy isn't just following a herd into the in the wrong direction? No, absolutely, and that's, I mean that's that's the um, that, that's the amazing thing about markets, really, and it's it's one of the hardest um, in seeming uh, seeming contradictions to understand that you have these incredibly efficient methods for uh, pricing things on the one hand but also um, the market itself can run away um, get completely obsessed by a narrative and um, bubbles form all the time it's not necessarily that um, people are acting irrationally inside that bubble they're responding to the bubble it just looks with hindsight <laughs> supremely stupid and irrational yeah you meant you mentioned rationality and you know the, the famous uh phrase coined by alan greenspan to dis- describe bubble behavior is irrational exuberance but actually yeah. when you are watching a market rising and one in part of that action what's irrational about that we talk about momentum as a strategy often um and and the alpha that that has delivered consistently over the years what's what's irrational about wanting to follow upside to, to chase the winners well, yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, also that idea of irrational um, exuberance, kind of, um, it suggests that you kn- there, there's some kind of knowledge that something's irrational at, at the time. And you could have easily stayed out of um, much of uh, the bull market, which um, abruptly ended at the start of the year. And equally, you could have stayed out of much of the recovery that we've had, you know, very, very short that it, it's been so far. The, um, 
on the basis that, you know, markets are overvalued. It's, um, you know, historically, the kind of valuations we're seeing point to very poor returns, um, in, you know, out into the future. You know, what, what what's irrational, actually, is um, something which is dictated by what happens in the future, <laughs> unfortunately. So we don't know we're being irrational, That and that is part of the problem, I guess. Well, yeah, no, no one would choose to be irrational. When there is that momentum, are you more irrational to say, no, I'm just not going to follow the, follow the momentum? I mean, you know, you have, you have, you have to have some... Ba- I, mean, I think this, is, this comes down to the importance of having a kind of um, very clear strategy because you have to have some basis on which you're going to invest. And if you're just following crowds blindly, that's when you get into trouble. If you, you know, buy a stock without doing um, any research, if you back a manager without understanding what they're trying to do, then you won't have any staying power and you will just be being moved by, you know, what the rest of the market's doing, moved by the, you know... Basically, you know, the, the main forces at work with, you know, when what all, you know, a lot of behavioural finance boils down to is just this idea of fear and greed, which is, you know, people have been talking about long before they're talking about behavioural finance. And, um, you know, that's the thing which is going to buffer you. When you're down, you want to sell. When you're, when you're up, you want to buy more, which is um, kind of go, goes against the, the idea that, you know, we should buy low and sell high. The real emotional forces putting us on us to do the exact opposite of that. You and I, we've both been through quite a few bubbles. I guess uh, you were there when the dot-com bubble was inflating and deflating. We've, we've seen the oil price bubble. Yeah. We've seen the, uh, the real estate bubble in the US that led to the credit crunch. I mean, we, we, we've sat through all of these things. What have we learned from them? <laughs> Philip has talked to us about how bubbles have always ended in tears in the past. And he has, his world of history knowledge is just unbelievable. He, he could, so I spoke to him about where bubbles have emerged in the past and what we can learn from them. Hi, Philip. Thanks very much for joining us uh, on the podcast. For I think this is your debut, certainly on the, on the new style of the podcast. Uh, it certainly is, yeah. I shudder to think when I last did a podcast, but it was, I confess, it was some years ago. Well, uh, well it's good to have you back on. Your article... In the magazine this week, it's called the the original bubble. Um, it actually inspired the topic of this podcast this week, so thanks for that. Um, it's looking at mania, herd mentality, which led to the South Sea bubble. T- tell us what happened there. Okay, well, the South Sea bubble started with a generally a generally optimistic background, but like so many operations, it sort of needed more and more money uh, to be issued to to continue to be successful. And it's not entirely clear why the bubble in South East stock burst. We're now in the autumn of 1720. The whole thing started uh, early in 1720. Uh, the stock reached its peak of about, a, I think, a £1,000 per stock unit in the summer in August. Um, by, the, by the autumn, the stock price was well down, and I think by the end of the year, it had fallen 80% from its high. No one is entirely sure why that happened. It didn't help that there'd been corruption on a grand scale to force the price up in the first place. And, you know, many, many people, many people um, pointed that out. So, you know, there was a combination of factors which, which I guess, with the benefit of hindsight, brought the price down and, and deflated the bubble and so on and so forth. But, you know, largely those only became clear with hindsight. I suppose that's true of a lot of of these bubbles, of, of not really knowing what it was that was the tipping point, but it all seems to unravel quite quickly when that tipping point is reached. The South Sea bubble, it's, it's a relatively complicated 
underlying cause. I mean, it's all still based, though, as you say, optimism, demand. And that's something that is true across loads of bubbles throughout history. I mean, you call South Sea the original bubble, but it, it isn't. It's certainly not the only one of, of that time, tulip mania being another one. What, what are the key factors behind many, many of the, of the bubbles that have emerged throughout history? We can list a few, and um, happily the South Sea bubble, if we make a template of, of, of factors, uh, happily the South Sea bubble will, will meet most of the factors in that template, but so will others. Um, okay, so first of all, we need, we need a general background of optimism. I mean, almost that's stating the obvious. Uh, you're not going to be buying stocks and pumping up the price of a stock if, um, if you feel pessimistic and if people in general feel pessimistic. Um, so you need a general feeling of optimism, you know, the feeling that things are going well and therefore the implication is that things will continue to go well and they'll probably get better. And that was the case uh, in the run-up to, um, uh, to the South Sea bubble. It was the case, for example, in the, in the 19th century in America as um, there were successive bubbles in railroad stocks. Um, I mean, they, 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 were, they were great examples of bubbles. And it was probably true of, well, I think it certainly was true of um, uh, the dot-com boom in the late 1990s. That was clearly based on technological innovation. Sorry, that was clearly based on, uh, on, on optimism, which was caused by technological innovation, which very conveniently brings me to my second generic point, which is first optimism, second innovation. You, 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 need, you need some forms of innovation, whether it's technological innovation, as, is, as was the case with the railroad stocks in the 19th century or uh, technological innovation in the case of the technology boom. Or maybe you just need financial innovation, which was the case with, for example, the subprime collapse of 2008 or 2009 in, in, in the United States. That was based on financial innovation because securitization, which was very sensible, sort of... Um, it got out of hand, and from securitization, you had um, collateralized debt obligations, and then you had leveraged collateralized debt obligations. So you know, the, the thing started spinning out of control in the way that sometimes human things do. Okay, so what I'm going to say, I'm saying optimism, innovation, you need plausibility, you need a good story. South Sea Bubble, with hindsight, looked a ridiculous story, but at the time, it was quite plausible because uh, there seemed to be a grand trade to be had in, in Latin America, in Latin America, South America, the West Indies. These were far away places which, um, which apparently held, um, you know, they held enormous promise. In hindsight, having hindsight is a wonderful thing. Obviously, when we look back on it, we can see that the South Sea bubble was, was crazy, and the same is true across a lot of other bubbles as well. Tulip mania, for example, price of a tulip bulb cost as much as a house which of course in hindsight is ludicrous but they are hard to spot at the time why do you think that is well i think partly because plausibility is a factor um there has to be a story behind it um and it has to be a half decent story the south sea company had a you know they had a fair story to tell look, there's this big land over there which offers huge economic potential uh, and we're going to exploit that. And, but, you know, we need rather a lot of capital to do that. Um, and, can you, and can you provide it, please, by 
by swapping um, government debt for um, for uh, for fancy equity. So another example of plausibility, for example, which sounds ridiculous with hindsight, was 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 Bernie Madoff. Remember the Bernie Madoff scam of the early 2000s? For years and years, his, his scam oper- oper- operated for years and years. But it was it was a bubble in the sense that it got to the stage where he was almost turning money away because year after year, this guy who had who had a wonderful track record who was a pillar of the establishment in the New York Stock Exchange, kept churning out marvellous returns. They weren't so marvellous that, uh, that people said, well, it, just suck, it simply can't be true, but they were good enough that it attracted money. Each year, more money was doled out. Um, each year, he had an increasingly plausible um, list of clients who, who thought he was wonderful. And, you know, it just went, it just went on and on. Um, it was only with hindsight that that was utterly ridiculous. At the time, it was plausible that, you know, there are great stock pickers, there are outstanding investors, and, you know, hey, it just might be that Bernie Madoff was one of them. I mean, you know, his, his CV was sufficiently good for that to be plausible. So plausibility is a big thing. Mm. Plausibility, but also maybe leaving kind of a little gap of, of lack of understanding, mm. uh, a lack of understanding which is then kind of filled by hope by expectation, the expectation that um, the South Sea Company could deliver untold riches, the expectation that somehow um, uh, technology would deliver wonderful things in the late 19th century and again at the turn of the, uh, 20th, uh, of the 20th century into the 21st. With regard to the South Sea one, you've got a, a fascinating anecdote about Sir Isaac Newton and, uh, and he... He was involved. He was investing in in the South Sea Company, and and he lost out. He, mm-hmm. he was caught in the bubble. Uh, Suggests that even the world's best brains struggle to spot bubbles. If if that's true about Sir Isaac Newton, what hope do the rest of us have? How how can we uh, how can we be rational if if even Sir Isaac Newton couldn't be? Just because you're a mathematical genius doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be um, a, a financial genius. That is true. So, okay, so, I, I, you know, it's well known that Newton lost a lot of money um, in the South Sea bubble. I think what's not known, certainly what I don't know, is the extent to which he took his uh, investments terribly seriously in the sense that we would take it terribly seriously. So, you know, I'm struggling here because I'm saying there's a kind of, there's a knowledge gap. We don't really know how much Newton did know. We know that he was super intelligent, which is probably putting it mildly. We know that he must have known quite a lot because, after all, he was, he was round about that time. He, he had moved from Cambridge to London. He had moved from Cambridge to London to sort of, I don't know, to get it in, a, in effect. I don't know what his motives were, but in effect, he left academia and joined the world of the world of commerce. He he became uh, what was the title? He was master of the royal mint, which I guess is the equivalent to being the uh, the governor of the Bank of England nowadays. He was in effect he was in charge of the UK's monetary policy, so you would kind of think and hope that he he knew a, a, a certain amount about the uh, the things which would make for successful and successful investments. But at the end of the day, we don't really know why Newton went heavily into the stock, sold out and made a lot of money, 
and then mysteriously was persuaded to go back into the stock in June, um, just as the bubble was reaching its, reaching its high point. Nobody really knows. We know who persuaded him to go back in, but we don't really know how and why they persuaded him to go back in. But I, I suppose, you know, the best answer is that he he kind of, he succumbed to groupthink. He succumbed to, uh, to, you know, to the notion that it was wonderful because everybody else said it was wonderful, therefore it must be wonderful. We, you know, we, we don't know, but all of us have this kind of element of credulousness within our minds. We're all, you know, we don't think it, but we're all, whether we like to admit it or not, we are all... Um, we are all in danger of falling into groupthink. And that, that's something that is reflected across almost every single bubble throughout history. And, and we, can, we can definitely learn from, learn from that in, uh, mm-hmm. in potentially investing in future bubbles. Well, yes, indeed, and there will be. I mean, you know, almost by definition, we can't spot them because that's the trouble with, uh, that's the trouble with, future, uh, with, with, with bubbles. You, you don't know. Uh, we've kind of come full circle now because they begin, they begin with a notion of plausibility. They also begin with this notion of optimism, which we probably don't have at the moment. So, you know, famous last words, there may not be a bubble in the process of being inflated just at the moment, but I stress those are famous last words because even if there were, then we probably wouldn't spot it. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep our eyes peeled anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for joining me, Philip. Okay, you're welcome. Can can you um, actually learn how to um, you know spot spot a bubble? I mean, in, in some ways you can, but you can't say when it's going to burst. And um, I mean, I, I suppose the main thing people can um, learn learn from bubbles is you know just how to, how to get through them, how to you know keep your feet on the ground. And I, I think at the moment. Um, it's very interesting because we're seeing markets which are totally driven by um, liquidity, it seems, by um, kind of, you know, monetary um, policy response and earnings, which are, you know, the fundamentals which most people look to to kind of derive where markets are going to go. They don't seem to be playing a part in what's happening. So, um, you know, how, how um, conservative do you actually want to be in the, in the face of these kind of markets? Do you, would you want to, um, you know, be all in? Maybe, maybe that's been your that that is your strategy. Just you know, just like live live lives through the ups and downs of the market. Or do you have a strategy for dealing with, you know, where you perceive value to be? If you think a rally like this can be sustained and becoming, you know, and whether new old highs can be recaptured quite quickly. I was doing a bit of digging earlier because I remembered during the dot com uh, boom and bust, there was a there was a famous fund manager who um, was sacked basically for not playing uh, the 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 dot com boom. A guy called Tony Dye, who I'm sure that yes, you will remember. Yeah. He was uh, he was also nicknamed Doctor Doom, so he was permanently calling this bubble. But unfortunately, it meant that his fund was a very poor performer and he was sacked. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I guess in this sense though, he, I mean he was right ultimately. But he missed ultimately. all that upside on the ultimately. But he missed all that upside mm-hmm. on the way up. I guess in this sense, private investors have a massive advantage over over fund managers. You're not going to get sacked if you uh, continue to to adopt a conservative no. strategy. No, but it, it may it may be very hard to stick to your guns all the same. You're, I mean, yes, you're your own fund manager, so um, you you may you know you may you may be able to hang on in there. But um, e- even then, you're you know if you're if you've moved entirely to cash. At some point during the crisis, crisis, and now you're looking at markets tearing up, is going to be extremely uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I know. I know there were lots of people who would have lost a lot of money in the initial sell-off uh, on paper uh, at the beginning of absolutely. Uh, yeah. um, and had they had they done exactly that, sold at the bottom, moved into cash for fear of what came next, uh, they would not have recovered those losses. But lots of people have recovered a lot of losses in in the totally. you know, month or so since. If and if you're invested in you know big tech, you probably you know you're 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 probably um in quite a good place right now. Then isn't that becoming a little bit? terrifying as well because like we said we talked about it there being a bit too much hype in the markets even before coronavirus happened and now we've got this impending recession and the valuations of a lot of companies is pretty much back to where it was it it could could that be a a bubble another tech bubble i mean I, i look at the tech stocks now and i see very different companies to the tech stocks that were that were flying high in in uh, 1999 1998 you know that at that point a lot of internet stocks were were booming you know they were going to change the world by selling pet food online or whatever it might be and commanding huge valuations but but there there wasn't really an infrastructure to support them you know nobody had super fast broadband in their homes nobody had mobile uh, devices that could use you know that could could uh deliver the internet and that experience i think we are tech is in a different place than it was back then yeah i mean i i i i feel that totally because i mean you know back back during the the dot com boom it was all imagined glories and um and and, and also you know for the deep value stuff because i mean one of the interesting things now is we've got as big a gap as we had then, or, or you know, slightly bigger on some measures between value and growth, um, in, uh, growth stocks. You know, growth basically being tech and value being things like retailer, retailers, etc., banks or companies. Now, th- those industries which people thought would be disrupted twenty years ago actually have been, or you know, and are being disrupted really severely. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you've kind of got something which is more substantiated. I look back at, you know, Amazon is a really interesting example, which which is obviously the huge company it is now, but it was around back then. But the difference is, is that back then it was a bookseller online. That's what it did. That's all it was. And it commanded a huge valuation. Um, it's not that anymore. It's a very different company doing lots and lots of different things from cloud computing to, to uh, streaming content. It's a, it's a logistics business. It's lots more things than it was back then. Um, and, and therefore, I think perhaps deserves the position it has at the, the top of markets these days in a way that the, the dot-com boom didn't. So, so I, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. We've looked at it in, in a lot of detail in the magazine this week, that particular company. And Chris has some very interesting insights on Amazon, as you can hear from my interview with him now. Hi, Chris. Thanks very much for joining us again. Uh, so you've, you've lived bubbles. What makes them challenging to investors? Well, the thing about a bubble is is that it's not simply a price that you think is too high. What happens in bubbles is that prices tend to rise simply because they've risen before. It's when the market gets more so than usual, um, momentum of its own. And the interesting thing here is that there's a nice analogy between bubbles uh, and viruses in viruses spread through contact and a similar thing happens with bubbles people buy because other people are, are, are telling them to buy that's a really um that's an interesting link especially at 
at this time, at the current time. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that investors, I mean, we all do so much research. I mean, there's, there's not a lot you can do about a virus if you come into contact with it and you catch that virus. But with investing, people can apply rational thought. They can do their research and they can think, no, this is looking crazy. It looks, it looks like mania. This looks like hype. What is it, do you think, that makes people seem to forget that rationale and and follow the herd and, and catch the virus, if as it were? It, it's quite simply because we are social animals. We are affected by the ideas of people around us. And, and so we should be. And if you're ignoring what everyone else is saying and doing, you're, you're really an arrogant prat. <laughs> and, and it's perfectly um, sensible to believe that there, there is sometimes wisdom in crowds. In fact, there very often is wisdom in crowds. The, the, the problem with bubbles is that that wisdom disappears. Um, what, and what you get is um, something like an information cascade where people are buying because others are buying. Now, now, very often, you know, it's perfectly sensible to do what other people are doing. If you're in an unfamiliar town and you're looking for a restaurant, it's perfectly reasonable to want to go to the crowded restaurant because you believe that the people in there know something. You know? And, and similarly, in investing, sometimes doing what other people are doing is, is, is the right thing. And we know that, that there is momentum in share prices generally. So buying a share because it's gone up can be um, a very wise thing to do. You know, the problem with bubbles is that we get into a sort of pathological extreme of what is ordinary sense, ordinarily sensible behaviour, in which sensible behaviour becomes expensive. Mm, yeah, that's... I mean, that was certainly true in the dot-com boom and uh, that the expense, the value that was being assigned to some of the tech stocks simply, I mean, often because there was just this mania for tech. Was there at that time an assumption that it would all eventually unravel or did people think that this this bubble would just keep inflating forever? Well, they did think that it would inflate forever and if you look at one particular stock not only were they correct to do that but they were actually far too pessimistic and that's amazon mm. amazon more than justified um ex expectations for it even at its peak now you can think that of perhaps a parallel universe somewhere where there's more than one Amazons, where, where there's three or four or five stocks, um, uh, dot-com dot stocks in, in, in the late 90s, that, that became a little like Amazon or mini Amazons and would have justified their, their valuation. So it, it wasn't absurd um, to believe that, that, that tech stocks would get very big in 1999 because, because one of them did. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't even the only one, was it? We we have we've got a, there's still a thriving tech market in the US. It was just that applying that that thought that everything would keep going, which was the danger. What should investors have learnt from from that tech mania, and and should we be applying those lessons today? 
I think I think there are lessons to learn. One is that it's very important to have a strategy for trading momentum. One very nice rule here, a very simple rule, is the 10-month average rule, or 200-day. You buy if a price is above its 200-day average. You sell if it falls below. This has the virtue of allowing you to trade bubbles on the upside, but get out before the bubble deflates a long way. It will not get you into a price at the bottom. It will not get you out at the top. But what it will do is avoid the very slow, long-term deflation of bubbles that, that can cost, cost you almost everything. And another thing to, to be aware of is to realise that word-of-mouth effects are important and to realise that the stories you hear from other investors are a biased sample of what they're doing. If, if someone owns a small stock that goes up a long way, they're likely to tell you about it. If someone owns a stock that's lost their money, they're much less likely to tell you about it. So the stories that you hear from your friends and colleagues aren't a good guide to, to investing. Mm, that's really interesting. A highlight reel of, of investing. Yeah. Do you... um, and, and, and it's a very, very biased highlight reel. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, just as there are some some players who only look good on match of the day, you know, there are some stocks that only look good in word of mouth. Mm. Do you think we're in a bubble now? I don't think I don't think so. No, um, I mean, people often talk about there being a bubble in bonds, but I, I don't think that's even logically possible because the the thing about bonds is that they have a terminal value. You know, you, you cannot tell a story about gilts in which a 10-year gilt will be worth several thousand pounds in 10 years' time. You know, so gilt yields do have some some kind of anchor. So we can forget talk about a bubble in gilts. It may, it may well be that prices will fall, but not every fall in prices is the result of a bubble. And one thing... We need for a, for a bubble to exist. Well, we need several things, but one thing that's uh, signally missing in this case is a sense of optimism. You know, bubbles are the result of high animal spirits, uh, and these are, are lacking, very lacking at the moment. You know, people have been scarred not just by, you know, the fall in prices in March, but also by... Um, by the financial crisis of 2008-2009, you know, these are still live in the memory. And it's, it's that sense of optimism that fuels a bubble that, 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 we're, that we're not seeing. But how about the fact that there is cheap money at the moment? There are people who are... <laughs> the markets look more attractive than the bond markets do, even with this coronavirus uncertainty even though there is an optimism around, is there sort of a, could there be a sense of this is the best option, so just keep doing it? Yes, yeah. And what we're seeing is, is what they call a reach for yield. You know, 
equities uh, are offering better returns than than, than cash or or, um, or gilts, and so investors are, are piling into them. But this is a process that could carry on for some time because interest rates aren't going to go up for for, for quite a long time, and um, so so that could sustain equities and also equities are are still quite cheap i mean the dividend yield of of almost five percent is two and a half times what we saw in 1999 you know so we're we're nowhere near bubble territory for shares you know that's not to say that prices will carry on rising but but it does mean that if they fall it'll be for reasons other than the fact that they're, they're in a bubble Okay, so I mean, that's, I suppose, slightly reassuring, like markets behaving sensibly. The area, obviously, bubbles don't just emerge in the whole market, they can emerge in specific areas. And one area where there is potentially a sense of renewed optimism post coronavirus is green investment. And that's something that's been sort of brewing for a while. Mm. But yeah, it seems to have got new momentum. Everyone's now talking about green energy again in, in more yeah. with more enthusiasm. Can you see a bubble emerging in the green space? I think this is a very strong candidate for a bubble. What a bubble needs is a story. Right? And the story is normally one about um, the future potential of a, of a new technology. You know, we saw a bubble in railway stocks in, in the 1840s, in radio stocks in the 1920s, and in tech stocks in, in the 90s. The common link there was that people could plausibly say, you know, these are the companies that will dominate the future economy. And it could well be um, that the same thing will happen to green stocks. You yeah. know, green energy and, and other play, plays on that. Yeah, yeah, it sounds, it does sound like it, it could be a potential candidate, something to watch for sure. Should investors avoid that that hype at this sort of if we are going into an early early stage of a bubble or should or should you ride the market momentum it, it is possible to ride momentum what we know about um the, for example tech stocks in the 90s is that that 10 month average 200 day average rule worked pretty well you know it did get you a long way up the bubble and it did get you out of the bubble before most of it burst. You, you did lose something at the top, but nothing like what you'd have done if you'd sat in um, and the market throughout. The problem is um, that although it's easy to know what rule to follow, it is fiendishly difficult to actually stick to it. Because even as the bubble is bursting, which we only know in retrospect, of course, you've got all sorts of reasons to want to stay in because you think that the price dip is just a blip that's a a buying opportunity. You still believe um, the bullish story and so on. And, of course, you're still being influenced by what what other people are doing and saying. To ride a bubble requires immense discipline. Yeah, that's... uh something that's very easy to to switch out of once you get lost in the story one thing that warren buffett said here that was very very true is that investing he said isn't a matter of intelligence 
it's, it's a matter of, of, of discipline. And that is even more true in doubles than normal. Well, that's a, f- a fascinating thing to try and try and live by. Always try and live by Warren Buffett, I suppose, <laughs> as an investor. But that's a that's a good one. Thanks very much, Chris. Good to speak to you again. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Good. Another thing that we talked about, as we've just heard, is the fact that he does not think we are in a bubble at the moment, but we could be tipping towards one. Algie, how do you feel about the whether or not we're in a bubble right now? Um, I mean, you know, it, 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 the answer's the answer's always the same. That you know, I'll tell you once it's burst. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's it's quite hard to square the economic outlook with what's been going on um, in markets. I mean, possibly we do get a far sharper recovery than um, most people are thinking, but then also. What we really have to look at is the amount of liquidity uh, that's being put into the market by central banks um, and ask, is, you know, is that driving what we're seeing? Probably the answer is yes. And then also, you know, to what extent are we going to get more of it? Because we also know that there's going to be a huge um, need for debt from governments. which is, So they're going to, you know, suck up some of this money that's being created. And um you know, is is there gonna, is there going to be more? You know, whatever it is, you know, helicopter money maybe is you know the the extremes that people are talking about. You, you know, you could argue with you know we've already seen the beginnings of that. Um, but yeah, are we, are we gonna are we gonna see something more? Are we kind of just part part way through a policy manoeuvre mm. by banks? Unheard of for there to be bubbles caused by by monetary policy. I mean, it happened in Japan, and it's both. Philip and Chris talked about optimism and the fact that for bubbles to be invaded, there needs to be optimism. But do you think it needs to be like just pure optimism, or can it be a irrational optimism, an optimism that is doesn't is not justified? And potentially, we are seeing that where people are looking to the future with with slightly starry eyes rather than worrying about the potential recession what what i find really strange is that we seem to have lots of different potential bubbles at the same time so to to buy equities you have to be an optimist and that will drive the price up but then if you buy bonds you're buying them because you're slightly fearful of what the future has in store you want something secure and, and a safe haven and their price has gone through the roof you want something even more secure you buy gold and the gold price is going through the roof so, so you've got all of these bubbles inflating at the same time potentially that's what i find a bit strange they, they're, they're contradictory yeah although they have that one great unifier which is um, monetary policy yeah. And, you know, monetary policy is really interesting. When I look back at all these bubbles, there always seems to be some kind of financial ingredient to them that helps inflate them. So so uh, I had a chat with my former colleague, Danny O'Sullivan, yesterday. I was hoping to get him on, but uh, unfortunately, he uh, he works in the industry now, so he wasn't allowed to talk to me. But I've got his book, Petromania, in front of me, and he wrote uh, about the oil price bubble in the mid-2000s. And, you know, there was a lot of financial engineering that drove the oil price up to $147 a barrel. Um, you know, demand and supply did not account for that. It was a financial ingredient. The low that we've seen recently, the amazing, um, you know, headline-grabbing negative oil, was all you know all about financialization of um of that market yeah and and, and so, so that's always something i'm looking out for you know in the background what is what is that financial ingredient um but i you know don't fight the fed don't fight the fed is the kind of you know rallying oh, cry absolutely. of the markets 
Um, so what do you do? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you, yeah, I mean, you've, you to, to an extent go with it. I mean, just make. I, I think, I think the the thing that people should kind of remember um, from you know the sell off in March is where where are my comfort levels, and that, I mean that and that's actually something really in terms of um, behavioural finance, something really important from the sell off like that is that it really helps you um, kind of understand what you're actually comfortable with because. People can talk about, you know, these huge drawdowns and you can say to yourself, I just have to be ready for that. That's that's part of life as an investor. But the experience of them is very, very different from um, the intellectual, um, the intellectualizing of them, because when when you're actually experiencing those kind of losses, it can be extremely painful. And um, if even if you've had some, you know, you're you're in you're in some wealth wealth preservation fund let's say which has seemed like it's been useless for 10 years and made you no money that's the time when um that kind of investment is actually going to help you out psychologically because it means you can possibly get through it without um you know without selling all your shares right at the bottom of the market for example it's kind of you know it's kind of like you you learn about yourself and investing at the end of the day if you're doing it yourself it is all about your emotional responses and how they make you behave Absolutely, and and bubbles are all about emotions, the madness yeah. of crowds. And, bu- and bubbles. I mean, I, I just think bubbles. The amazing thing about bubbles is when you know when they're really there, you've got that um, kind of you've basically got the combination of fear and greed going on because you've got the fear of missing out, as they call it, the fear that you know the fact that you're sitting in you know cash or you're sitting in um, an unpopular um, part of the market or asset class. You know, you you feel like you're making a loss. You you know, everyone else is making loads of money. You're you, you know, essentially that kind of like plays on the on the mind in a similar way to how a loss does. And then also you've got the greed factor. You desperately want you know want to have this amazing asset. And by definition, if something looks that amazing, it's been doing that well, it'll feel like it can never go wrong. So you've got kind of you know the the, the, the two big behavioural forces at work: the fear and greed, all pushing in the same direction. And yeah, it often, well, a, a bubble always does end in tears. Thank you, Algie. Uh, ever insightful. I'll leave you to get back to the garden. Thank you. The Investment House. We've now been joined by Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of the IC, to talk about fund managers who have played the bubbles of history. Sometimes they've played a contrarian approach and sometimes it's worked, sometimes it hasn't. Dave, why would you think a fund manager would take a contrarian strategy during a bubble? Hi, Megan. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess on the one hand, it's a way to kind of differentiate themselves and perhaps offer something that investors aren't finding elsewhere. Obviously, when you get bubbles, you get a lot of crowding around the same positions, so they might want something distinctive. But also, it just comes down to what they see as an opportunity and the fact that when it does pay off, obviously lots of cases it doesn't but when it does pay off it can really protect investors it can really help performance and also it can make a fund manager's reputation if you know in a a famous bubble and a famous crash they manage to come through um that can protect them in future so if they're kind of coming under criticisms then people can hark back to you know 10 years ago 20 years ago when they made the right call and say perhaps they're onto something now I can think of one famous fund manager who who, uh, <laughs> who who did exactly that, Neil Woodford. 
Yes. If I remember rightly, he he had sold or he had never invested in uh, banks uh, during the uh, credit crunch. So he came out of that looking spectacularly good. Yeah, and same with um, the dot-com boom and bust. He was kind of veering away from those um, you know, very highly valued stocks and um he took a lot of criticism and then finally you know when everything fell apart he came out looking really good and it's, it's kind of interesting with it because as i said it, it it bolsters your reputation um it becomes sort of a tool you can use when defending your decisions in future um and that was that was a real difficulty for retail investors in you know the last few years when the woodford story was sort of unraveling um, because people were wondering, you know, is he is he wrong this time? In the last few years, he's been, again, talking about there being a bubble, talking about flashing red lights. So he talked about things like high the high price of Bitcoin, um, really low yields on junk debt, um, various other metrics that he thought were, you know, red flags, essentially. And when people were questioning his performance and some of his poor stock picks, a lot of the, the defense came around the fact that in two very high profile cases he was proved right it's quite interesting though because you know people seem to then buy into the woodford story because of neil woodford just neil woodford that that's it so mm. it kind of it kind of makes me think you know do you get a bubble in superstar fund managers everyone just piles in <laughs> on the basis that it's neil woodford or whoever it might be there, there's all sorts of issues aren't there there are, there are the Woodford saga really highlighted the issue of funds getting too big and related liquidity issues. Um, I mean, with Woodford, that was notable because um, he had this basket of unlisted stocks and very illiquid stocks. um, And that became very difficult to manage, um, particularly because he had so much money. But another problem was the fact that he was just running so much money that um, if he wanted to kind of change his positioning even in the listed very liquid um, large cap market then you know that had an effect on prices and that ended up you know having a knock-on effect on his performance and that's been a problem as um, different investment managers have been trying to uh, unwind his portfolio and return money to investors because everyone knows he needs to sell these stocks so everyone's trying to get it a bargain price. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the Woodford situation has been uh, quite a palaver to unwind and it, it kind of shows the dangers of staff and staff fund managers. Have there been any other examples of fund managers who've just got it wrong, who who tried to play a contrarian approach during a bubble and, and just completely failed? I mean, I guess part of it comes down to the debate on whether the current situation or pre-COVID sell-off situation was a bubble. But one really interesting contrarian manager who has really, really struggled, um, particularly in recent months, is a guy called James Clooney. So he runs uh, an absolute return fund for Jupiter, um, basically a sort of long, short equity fund. And he's gone very kind of pro kind of value stocks, um, you know, beating up unpopular stocks. And he's essentially gone against the most popular names. So he's had big short positions on the US equity markets. Um, He's famously had short positions on stocks like Tesla, which has absolutely obviously skyrocketed this year. So his performance has really fallen apart, um, particularly in recent months. I mean, that's been especially bad because he can 
go long on the stocks he likes that have remained out of favour, and he can go short on the stocks he doesn't like, which have, you know, continues to do really well. But I think what you what you're asking highlights a really important point, which is just because you're contrarian doesn't mean that you're right and doesn't mean that your process is uh, working correctly. Um, so briefly, I mean, we could talk about Woodford forever, but briefly to come back to Woodford, you can say, sure, he was a contrarian and perhaps, uh, you know, he's going against a very strong tide. But also some of his stock picks um, seemed very questionable. You know, he had Provident Financial in, I think, 2017, which lost, what, two thirds of its value in one day. And he had a lot of kind of picks that just didn't work out, perhaps for more idiosyncratic reasons than just saying, I don't want to be investing in these really popular parts of the market. With Woodford, it almost feels like an excuse, like I'm yeah. a contrarian inv- investor and that's what I do. But a lot of what he was doing actually wasn't even contrarian investing. I mean, a lot of what his, he was investing in was was the small cap pharmaceutical industry. I mean, he had so many pharma, pharma stocks in his income fund and they weren't paying dividends or anything. But kind of putting that... I'm contrarian, so it's okay <laughs> around it doesn't doesn't really work no, it's sort of a evergreen defense, isn't it yeah. um, and also you just need to be careful um I mean something we've written about in the magazine before is um just looking at who actually is contrarian, so a, a big i guess troubles contrarian story of the last decade or more is the whole value investing story uh and Basically, because it's been so hard for value investors to survive, as you've seen, kind of quality and growth stocks continue to rise. Um, many of them, well, many of them have either failed or you know don't run funds anymore or lost their jobs. But also, um, lots of them have succumbed to what's called uh, style drift, where you essentially your performance is really poor. You're really under pressure to make it good. So you know, bit by bit, you sort of just drift across. You start investing into some of those more popular names and you you become less contrarian so as an investor using funds you just need to look really closely at how exactly the fund is positioned is it still contrarian because if it isn't and you know you're holding it for when things turn then it's not necessarily going to perform how you want it to uh, when the moment does finally come you mentioned, Dave, quality income is another thing that the investors are often on the lookout for. Sorry to bag on about Neil Woodford again. You know, you're, <laughs> set, you're setting up an income fund from scratch, which essentially is what he did. The trouble yeah. is, where do you get that income from these days? Because it's all concentrated, or certainly lots of it is concentrated in a very few companies in the UK, and, and everybody's chasing it. So you're going to have to pay a lot for the income that's out there. I mean, in itself, you know, the same with quality. You know, yeah, everyone's chasing quality. So how do those yeah. managers respond to the fact? I mean, Terry Smith is a quality guy and, and he seems to be paying more and more for the, for the quality companies within his portfolio. How, how, do, they, how do they address that? Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's, it's such a difficult challenge. I guess with the UK, at least you can try and look across the whole market cap spectrum. There are a few income funds that will go more to uh, mid and small cap areas. Um, perhaps not. they're not as... Um, closely associated with income and with high yields as those larger mega caps but you are getting a level of diversification and you are you know moving away from some of that kind of concentration risk that you highlighted but yeah it's, it's not an easy one to solve it's very it's a very difficult dilemma back to the point about style drift and what what the underlying holdings are i mean that's a real lesson for investors to 
to have a look at what fund managers are actually holding. And, and often it is difficult if they're only if they're only publishing their top 10. How do you know? And it, again, Woodford, at least what he did was eventually publish his whole list. So you could people could go in there and see exactly what they were holding. But it is a real it's a real difficulty, I think, with some investors who use funds. They just sort of buy the label and assume that that's what's happening. But it not that's not always the case. I suspect very few people actually went and looked at Neil Woodford's list in full. Who oh, yeah, buy no. that fund. Very, yeah. very few. Yeah, a lot of that will have been track record, will have name, will have been sort of very attractive marketing, won't it? But yeah, it's, it's so hard with, with funds. I mean, it's it's really interesting when you look at the, there's a chasm in terms of the information available between, say, professional investors or, um, you know, specialists, like even investment journalists have certain tools they can use that retail investors don't have. To an extent, you're reliant on what the fund managers will tell you. So you can look through the fact sheets, you can look at their sector weightings, their top 10 holdings, um, their commentaries, and you can just closely monitor that to kind of dig into it. But you can also say, for example, with Stardrift, you can look at things like um, Morningstar has normally a page on its website for um, different funds. Um, and they will, this is, you know, very kind of um, basic, but they will provide a style box and it will kind of show you roughly where the fund sits on style. But also it's it's worth paying attention just to analysis. So for example, some fund ratings agencies, um, some investment platforms will put out a lot of commentary. Um, obviously, publications like ourselves will look closely at funds. But yeah, you do really have to do a lot of work. And uh, as you mentioned, John, perhaps there is there is just a, a lot of money chasing these popular names. And you really, you need to kind of try and resist that lure and just look at what actually works for you. What if you just want to ride the bubble? Well, the ride, the forming bubble. I mean, that, you know, there's, they're not contrarian. Just go for it. What, what, what should investors do? I mean, fun, funds do offer ways to, to tap into these trends, which, which some may suggest are, are bubbles forming. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one route is um, yeah, just via passives. So you could go for broad passives. You know, you're going to be buying some of the kind of um, market winners there. You're essentially getting the momentum of the markets. Um, but also, I guess it's interesting to look at the more thematic um, and perhaps what's called smart beta funds. So you're kind of you're targeting a either a factor or a sector or a trend. Um, so you can see that in the ETF space, but also active funds. You know, they they might focus on things like, for example, healthcare innovation. Um, or one that I've recently looked at is one that focuses on aging population trends. So that looks at healthcare, but that also looks at other companies that will kind of service um the aging population so yeah there are there are definitely lots of kind of niche ways to focus on uh trends whether they're bubbles or not that may kind of reward you as an investor but again you do need to be careful um just with kind of what's in it so um turning again to specific etfs there is a uh, gender equality etf it's very kind of laudable cause but I've been looking at that, and interestingly, one of the criticisms about the specific ETF is they're relying on companies' declarations and the data they publish on their levels of kind of gender equality. And a lot of that data is quite fuzzy. Um, it's not yet very transparent. So sometimes the ETF will end up, you know, one year will end up um, in a company that ranks really well in terms of its kind of gender equality stats. 
Um, a year later, you look again at the ETF, and that company um, is actually really lowly ranked because a load of its peers have finally published their data, and it turns out it was, it was just a really bad call. So I'm careful of thematic bubbles. That was something you discussed with Chris, wasn't it, Megan? Um, well, yeah, specifically green green investing and the fact that mm. that could be an area in a few years' time where people are just sort of getting, getting swept up in the hype of the fact that that we, we're, we're thinking about the economy differently. We're thinking more in terms of we need to be slightly more green green-minded. And how many companies which have like a tiny little bit of their operations doing something to do with green energy could get get swept up in that but yeah in terms of um, potentially one of the biggest thematic issues at the moment the ESG is is pretty much purely based on self-reporting you end up with companies like Boohoo which is telling everyone that it's a, a green a green company and we're reliant on we're reliant on them saying that and that is not necessarily true same with funds you you now for for active managers they've been uh kind of struggling to attract investor money as lots of investors just go for passives um with markets rising for so long it's just a, a cheap easy way to make money so active managers are struggling to find new ways to get you know get revenues in and one way for them to grow has been via esg so now you have a lot of kind of um previously you could describe them as generalist active managers or conventional active managers have cottoned onto this trend um, and they're trying to sort of rebadge themselves as ESG-oriented managers. And some of them may be very good managers who are kind of genuinely implementing robust processes, but at the same time, some are simply, you know, going to maybe stick a new label on their fact sheets, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's very, very easy to get taken in. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding of the underlying assets and, uh, and do your research, I think, is... Uh, yeah. In there. Thanks very much, Dave. Really good to talk to you. Thanks for me on. That, I'm afraid, is all we have time for this week. But the magazine is chock full of goodies as usual. We've got more from Chris, and you've heard about that great piece of market history from Philip. And you've heard lots of talk about contrarian value on this podcast, which is exactly what Algie Hall has been looking for in this week's stock screen. We have lots of results back in, biggies including British Land, Whitbread, Burberry, Seven Trent and Pets at Home, which is making more from selling pet food online today than any dot-com casualty ever did. You also heard about how decent infrastructure is key to the success of modern tech companies, and that's something we've looked at in the form of BT and the question of how it pays for the UK's much-needed broadband renewal. Plus, we've got a few stock market bust-ups in the news section, including anger at Aviva's dividend cut and a short attack on Boohoo. But the real star of the show is this week's cover feature, which talks about many of the tech companies that are driving the rally that we've talked about, along with international businesses tapping into other major trends. Indeed, our view is that these companies will be shaping the future and should be in every investor's portfolios, or at least on their watch lists. The world's best shares, 15 international companies every investor should own. You simply can't buy companies like these in the UK, and that's something we'll be bearing in mind as we plan the IC's future coverage. So thank you all for listening, and thank you to all our guests, Chris, Philip, Dave, and Algie, and of course to my fantastic co-host Megan, who once again has written and coordinated the excellent cover feature this week. Pick up the magazine in all good news agents, or get online and subscribe if even Dominic Cummings' trip to Barnard Castle can't tempt you out of lockdown. Take care, and speak soon. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 